Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Nils Gilman, who is a bit hard to describe. In He has a degree in, in history. I think how he operates is a bit closer to political science. He's worked within academia, but has spent much of his, if not most of his professional career outside of academia, think tanks and consultancies. So he brings a bit of a fresh perspective onto climate change politics. And in this episode, we dive into how those who are concerned about climate change have tried to link it as an issue, other areas to other constituencies with mixed results. And I think the lessons to take away from these stories are highly important. Yeah, I first came across Neil's reading the article we talk about in half the podcast, which is his avocado politics, uh, which is a really eye-opening and quite shocking article that basically makes the argument that we might hope that by becoming aware of climate change, people will adopt progressive climate policies. But there's every reason to fear that the right wing, the far right, might have a very different response to the climate catastrophe, climate emergency than the left. And I think, yeah, there's this fresh thinking pragmatic thinking, experience from a wide range of worlds coming at the problem. Uh, I think that all comes across in this recording and great conversation. And in the second half of the episode, we steer the conversation towards another recent publication of Nils on the relationship between climate change and security, which perhaps not as simple as some observers claim it to be, and certainly the politics as it is played out in reality and, and how the military at least the U.S. military, has and has not taken on climate policies is revealing. So without further delay, we bring you our conversation with Nils Gilman. Today we're joined by Nils Gilman. He's the Senior Vice President of Programs at the Berggrun Institute. He's also the Deputy Editor of Noema magazine. Dr. Gilman has previously worked as an associate chancellor at the University of California, Berkeley, and as research director and scenario planning consultant at the Monitor Group and Global Business Network. So, Niels, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it looks like you've had quite an eclectic career. Could you take us through your background and how you got to where you are today? Uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a, <laughs> a drunken sailor's walk, you might say, career-wise. I first got a PhD in history back in the 1990s, and then I went and worked in software for a number of years, switched over and started doing consulting on, on national security-related matters for another half dozen years. Finally, just before the job I have at present, I worked at the University of California, Berkeley, which is where I got my degrees years ago. As an administrator, I was the chief of staff the chancellor there for a number of years. Um, and then for the last five years, I've been working at the Bruin Institute, which is a nonprofit based in Los Angeles. So we'll be talking here in, in about the first half or so of this episode about an article that you wrote a couple of years ago, published in the Breakthrough Journal called The Coming Avocado Politics. Nils, how do you define an avocado? What is, what is avocado politics? Well, the uh, the term avocado politics, which I coined for that article, is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, expression. It actually references back to something that was popular 
expression that was popular in German politics back in the 1970s and 80s when the Green Party, the German Green Party, first emerged on the scene. Uh, and what politicians at that time, particularly on the right, Christian Democratic right, uh, observed about the Green Party in Germany was that it was a watermelon party, green on the outside and red on the inside. And what they meant by that was that many of the people who were the founding members of the Green Party had been ardent lefties, particularly student lefties during the, uh, during the 1960s. And so there was this notion that the Green agenda, the environmental agenda that the Green Party was promoting, was really a backdoor way to accomplish the kinds of left-wing agendas that these founders of the Green Party had had as youths, and that it was a little bit of a Trojan horde. So whether you think that's a fair description of the German Green Party or not, I took with that idea uh, and tried to translate that into what I see as an emerging phenomenon um, in environmental politics today, which I call avocado politics. In the case of an avocado, it's green on the outside, um, but brown on the inside. And brown, of course, signifying uh, the traditional color of fascism. And what I was trying to refer to there is while environmental politics for the last generation or two in the West anyways, has been largely associated with other kinds of left politics, there is this other strain of environmental politics, which actually has a long tradition. And part of what I tried to do in the article is explain that intellectual and political tradition. There is another strain of environmental politics, which takes a very different stance than the kind of mainstream and dominant environmental politics that we see in most Western countries today, which tend to be sort of left aligned. And in fact, there is another version of environmentalism, which can take more right wing and in some cases, uh, even quite fascistic approach. So that's really what the term was meant to indicate. What are some of those historical examples uh, that you referenced in your article? Could you highlight a couple that might be more relevant to today's conversation of past environmentalists or environmental that has been tinged with ethno-nationalism? Well, you know, in the article, I try to lay out a, a, an intellectual history that's really t unfolds on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, starting in the late 19th century and running up into the 1990s. What you see in the first glimmerings of what we would now say the environmental, uh, the environmental movement, in the United States in particular, is a tendency to want to preserve or conserve conservationism, as it was described by Gifford Pinchot and Teddy Roosevelt and, and other early environmentalists in the United States, political environmentalists in the United States. They wanted to conserve natural resources. And who did they want to conserve those natural resources for? They wanted to conserve those for primarily Euro-American population. And there have been justifications that go back all the way to that time to put pressure on non-Euro-American populations to exclude them from the benefit of the environmental movement. And one of the classic examples of that was the way in which the threat of what nowadays gets some called the Great Replacement Theory, there's echoes of that that go back to the 1920s in the United States, where famously the 1924 Immigration Act, which shut the door on Eastern and Southern European immigrants and basically you know, locked into place a white Anglo-Saxon majority in the United States for the next 40 years, one of the ways in which that was justified was that all this, uh, this flood of Eastern and Southern Europeans was going to overwhelm the demographic the then demographic majority of Northwestern Europeans that were then dominant in the United States as population demographics. This was justified in part precisely on environmental grounds. We only have a limited amount of resource in this country, and we have to keep them for the right kinds of people. That venerable tradition goes back over 100 years in the United States. More recently, during the 1960s and 70s, there was another version of this that emerged out of kind of a neo-Malthusian fear. So you'll remember that in the late 1960s, Paul Ehrlich publishes a famous book, the population bomb, where they predict 
you know, on the basis of sort of continuing population trends that we were seeing global population increase by over 2% a year. And most of that population growth was happening in the global South. And there were great fears that were promoted, including by organizations that we don't think of as having kinds of associations today, like the Sierra Club, of a desire to stop immigration on the one hand, and to try to do things to repress the surging populations in the South, specifically on environmental grounds. The only way we could sustain the environment of the planet was by having what were then called family planning programs in the global South and to stop immigration to the global North because immigration to the global North would take poor people from the global South and turn them into rich consumers in the global North. And this would actually be very bad for environmental purposes. These strains within the environmental movement and within the Sierra Club specifically were not purged until the 1990s, actually. So this is not ancient history. This is you know, within living memory and, in fact, institutional continuity of people in these organizations. And of course, then more recently, we've seen the rise of justifications for really terrible atrocities, like things like, you know, most recently the Ovalde shooter, but also the Waco shooter, the Christchurch shooter, and a number of other shooters who have gone into non-white communities and shot them up on the grounds that the great replacement means that they're going to take away environmental resources from white people. And those environmental resources need to be preserved for the white Anglo-Saxon race. And that this is a different kind of response to the environmental and resource crises that we're experiencing because of global modernity and fossil capitalism and so on. In your article, you describe avocado politics as a dormant or a latent movement, that it is in the shadows, it's in the background, and it is something that could and perhaps is waking up and manifesting. Besides the uh, radicals who, who resort to violence, are there ways that avocado politics are manifesting in more traditional electoral or grassroots political contexts around the world? Yeah, great question. So I would answer this in two different First is to sort of look historically at conservative and particularly far-right parties in the West and in Western democracies. And what's been their attitude in particular towards climate change? The basic stance has been to either deny that climate change is happening altogether or to minimize the impact of climate change. So the, the standard issue, bog standard conservative position on climate change was either it wasn't happening or that it wasn't anthropogenic or that it didn't matter very much, or perhaps that there were other bigger fish to fry that were more important to take care of. Um, so in other words, climate and environmental issues were sort of off the radar and were downplayed by most mainstream right-wing parties historically over the last generation. The reality of climate change in particular is becoming more and more obvious. It's becoming an undeniable fact of life. It's gone from being something that was a theory that was created by you know, supercomputers doing projections of sensor data that was very technical, and then you had to decide whether you trusted the scientists who were putting together these simulations that were projecting where climate change was going, if you didn't buy that, you know, you couldn't really look out the door and see that climate change was happening. But with every passing year, it becomes more and more obvious at an experiential level to people that climate change is a reality. So the possibility of maintaining a denialist or a minimizing position is becoming less and less politically tenable for the political right anywhere in the world, or for any political party for that matter. It's becoming something that anybody can observe with their own two eyes. It's not something where you have to believe a bunch of scientists and their simulations in order to believe. So the possibility of denialist politics seemed to me to be receding. So the question is, what are right-wingers going to do? And the notion has been all along on the left, I think, that if we could just convince the right that climate change was happening, then they would automatically end up being willing to sign up for the policies that we on the left believe are the natural response to climate change. So they would embrace a Green New Deal, for example. 
I think the reason I wanted to excavate this history is I wanted to show that actually one could have a very realistic understanding of limited resources and the threat of climate change and come to very, very different policy conclusions that would be much more aligned with the kinds of priors that exist on the right and particularly the far right than that exist on the left. That, In other words, just because you accept climate change as a scientific fact doesn't follow directly that on a normative basis, you're going to embrace left-wing politics, that you might still find a way to use that to justify existing right-wing politics, whether that's anti-immigration politics, whether that's anti-developmental politics, or whether that's other forms of attempts to maintain differentiated life outcomes for people with currently high status, for people who have less, less status. So it doesn't necessarily point, just because one accepts climate change as a scientific fact, towards an embrace of the kind of social justice agenda that the left otherwise believes is the natural accompaniment of a realistic understanding of the scientific challenge of climate change. When we think about the right, to what extent is this early rise of, of a connection between anti-immigrant nationalist sentiment and environmentalism a manifestation of ideas being connected on the right in new ways? versus changes in relative status and power of groups within what we call the right. I mean, of course, the right's very diverse, just like the left is very diverse. And my sense is, I'm overall quite sympathetic with the argument you're sketching. Where I might differ a bit from what you said, and maybe this is just a matter of emphasis, is what I see going on on the right over the last 30 years some years, is that the resistance to environmental policies and climate change in particular has come from the pro-business libertarian wing of the right, the conservatism of Reagan, let's say, and the first George Bush president. But what we've seen is the rise in relative strength of a type of a populist nationalist that's not necessarily aligned with that former group. There's sometimes a strange bedfellows element going on on the right, just like there is on the left. And, and you look at someone like Trump, and in many ways, he's not a conservative. And in many ways, he's not a right winger, certainly not, not in the traditional sense. He's sort of a, a populist more than anything else. Are these glimmers of avocado politics that are perhaps waking from their dormancy a manifestation of the rise of a type of a connection of people and protection and protecting the people and protecting the planet at the same time within, within conservative circles or the right circles? I think you're absolutely right that part of the reason why I expect avocado politics to be an emergent phenomenon and a growing phenomenon is because the coalitional composition of the right is, is shifting exactly the way you're describing, away from business-centric interests, at least you know, in the United States, there's still a tax cut faction. But the centerpiece of the party, the base of the party now, is not at all supportive of the kind of libertarian politics that define particularly economic policy. Um, and also, I think you're right, environmental policy on the right, a deregulatory, pro-big business politics. I think it's complicated if we're speaking specifically of the United States, because that is not an exogenous, that shift in weight and power away from the libertarian pro-business wing of the party towards a more populist wing of the party that is interested in promoting welfare, the, you know, actually promoting the welfare state for white people, is not actually separable from the underlying phenomenon that I'm describing. I think the generalized discrediting of a kind of rah-rah, a kind of neoliberal capitalism 
has fallen into foul odor, not just on the left, but also on the right. I think Trump himself is a complicated figure because he's sort of a robber baron himself. He obviously was not an environmentalist. He wasn't interested in participating in any of the kinds of things that were going on in climate change negotiations. He tried to tear up the EPA to the maximum extent he could from an administrative perspective. I think that you know, in his own personal politics, he thinks that businesses, or at least American businesses, should be allowed to do whatever they want. So I don't think he personally, insofar as he cared about policy at all, was necessarily a manifestation of this phenomenon that we're talking about and calling avocado politics. But I do think that the direction of the base of the party is away from the, the pro-business kinds of factions that would have resisted an embrace of policies that acknowledge climate change. Now, with that said, I think an avocado politics of the right could actually be pretty business friendly to libertarians in the sense that it might be very focused on trying to limit consumption in the global South, but might be totally happy with this for white people to consume all they want in the United States. So there's going to be stakes and flat screen TVs and gas guzzling cars for Americans. It's the other people, people in other countries who we don't really trust and we don't really like who speak funny languages and eat funny food. And I think that is something that, at least with certain factions of liberty in the United States, particularly factions of the business community that are focused on domestic consumers, is perfectly compatible with a kind of avocado politics that's also a pro-business and anti-domestic environmental regulation. So I think it is possible to figure out ways to put together coalitions on the right that would be avocado politics, but would also be in favor of a kind of pro-business model in the same way that the Republican Party has often embraced. America is a little bit of an outlier, or quite a lot of an outlier when it comes to climate politics. I mean, in Europe, there's a lot of center-right parties that are acting on climate change to some extent. I mean, I guess the narrative you describe is quite a far-right narrative. Do you see center-right parties in Europe shifting more in that direction? So there hasn't been that much on the center-right, but on the far-right, and in many European countries, the far-right is a large party. So you look at the way in which Marine Le Pen's party, I can't remember what the current branding of it is, but the former Front National, they take a very kind of environmental friendly approach in a lot of ways, right? And they believe in maintaining the French countryside, protecting La France Profonde, making sure that national parks are kept pristine. They want to keep immigrants out because they want to keep France for the French, right? So that seems to me to be very much in line. They're not climate change deniers on the French far right. And, you know, these people get 20% of the vote in the first round of elections and 45% of the vote in the general election at this point. So this is not a fringe position at all within French politics. Other countries, you know, you've seen the far right parties go into coalition governments, sometimes with green parties. This happened in Austria, for example. So I do think that actually, in some ways, the avocado politics phenomenon as a mature politics, partly because of the multi-party system uh, and the need for coalitional politics in Europe, actually, in some ways, is more advanced in Europe than even in the United States, where the the structural two-party system makes the coherence of the ideology harder to work out. Earlier, when you were introducing watermelon politics in the context of Germany in the 1970s, you said that some critics of the German Green Party felt that they were something of a Trojan horse, that the green was the horse and inside was the red Trojan soldiers. Along those lines, Do we have any sense of sincerity among avocados? Is there any reason to doubt that they genuinely care about the natural environment and uh, climate change and so forth? Or are there reasons to believe that this is, in fact, a Trojan horse political step? 
So I don't know that there's any more disingenuousness on the right than there is on the left on this topic. I mean, I think that somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, genuinely believes both in the environmental things that she's in favor of and the social welfare policies, and she conjoins them together in what she calls the Green New Deal. Um, I, I think that there's no insincerity to that. I think that she believes that there's a natural connection between what she believes is happening with climate and the way to implement that is through these kinds of measures, which will create a new industrial infrastructure, which will also at the same time, you know, if implemented on her terms, realize the social justice aims that she believes in for exogenous reasons. So it's not so much that they're, it's one's a Trojan horse for the other, is that they are somewhat different axes of commitment. And the intersection point is one where she finds them to work together well. I think the same thing is probably true for the right. They actually do want to preserve French national parks for the French. I don't think there's anything indigenous French people, right? They really do believe that there is a process of grand remplacement. Uh, you know, the great replacement theory has gotten popular this spring because Tucker Carlson has been promoting it. But this was originally a, a term that was promoted out of France by a, a far right uh, intellectual here. So this is an idea that originates here in France on the far right. And it's explicitly connected in France to environmental concerns is that the replacement of the indigenous French population is partly a, a, a grab of resources by non-French people of French resources and resources that belong naturally to the French population. So this is, I don't think there's any insincerity to it. I think the point I've been trying to make is actually quite the opposite. It's that one can draw very, very different policy conclusions. One should not assume that there's an automatic translation from the is of climate change and resource depletion to the ought of social democratic wish lists on policy. One can draw a similar conclusion and say, well, we don't think it's actually realistic to create global justice. We think it's more realistic to hoard as much of, of the resources as we can for me and mine and you know, close the borders and shoot people who try to come and take the pieces that we've grabbed. That's, you know, those are not policies that I personally favor, but those are not an irrational response to the resource depletion challenge that we're facing, right? You know, we may, you know, if you're on the right, you might conclude, well, we still want to drive gas guzzling cars. The solution is to make sure nobody else gets those, because if it's only 300 million Americans that are driving gas guzzling cars, we don't really have a problem. The problem is when we have 300 million Americans and a billion Chinese and a billion Indians who all want to drive gas guzzling cars. If we do that, clearly that's going to be an environmental disaster. So the solution, therefore, the quote rational solution is to stop India and China from having gas guzzling cars or better yet, keep them so poor that they can't even afford to buy gas guzzling. That's not a position that resonates with the kinds of social justice commitments that are common on the environmental left, that it doesn't follow as a kind of policy, a logical policy conclusion, given a different set of exogenous priors about the kind of world you want to live in. Successful politics requires coalitions. And this podcast focused on climate change, work in the climate change world. And climate change is an issue where there's been difficulty in some areas in building majoritarian coalitions. Might there be an opportunity for those who are concerned about the environment to carefully build bridges with avocados? I mean, there's obviously strains of avocados. The brown aspect is something that many Greens disagree with. But if what one seeks is a policy victory, might there be something to be gained through careful cooperation? 
So I think the answer is probably yes, but not through engagement with the ideologists of avocado politics, but rather by figuring out how to engage the rank and file, who usually not that ideological, but they listen to something that somebody on the avocado politics right says, and they say, well, climate change is happening, and therefore you need to do X. I think it's possible if you can get people to agree on the premise that climate change is something we have to do something about, that you then can have perhaps a more reasoned conversation with people about, well, which of these two policy directions do we want to go? Schematically, do we want to go towards avocado politics or do we want to go towards watermelon? And there may be a lot of people who actually, because they're not that firm in their minds about which direction they want to go, who are persuadable from one to the other. And I think, for example, you know, the estimates are that there's 10 million people who voted for Obama in 2012 and turned around and voted for Trump in 2016, right? And all these politicians and political analysts have said, well, how can that be? How can you, how can you be the kind of person who would vote for Obama you know, and then turn around and, and, and four years later vote for Trump? And I think the reason is pretty straightforward, actually, right? Because in both Obama's case and Trump's case, they were able to represent, represent themselves as outsiders who spoke for the common man in, in some way. Whereas the person they were running against in both cases, Romney in, the, in 2012 for Obama and Hillary Clinton for Trump in 2016, were consummate insiders who you, if you're an anti-establishment person, there's no way you're voting for Romney. There's no way you're voting for Hillary Clinton, right? And so those same kinds of credentials could lead you know, millions of people to vote for Obama in 2012 and vote for Trump in 2016, despite the fact that those two men, at the level of both their characters and their policy propositions, couldn't possibly be more different other than sharing this one feature. So I think from that perspective, I think if avocado politics starts to grow, this might be a place where there could be inroads for politicians on the environmental left to potentially make appeals, assuming that they can figure out that they get people to agree about the priors rather than getting people to agree about the policy predicates. So I do think it opens up opportunities for new kinds of coalitions. And I think this is exactly what we've seen, particularly in the case of Austria, where the far right and the Greens went into coalition with one another because they had certain shared agendas in common. And they were able to agree on a small number of things. I and mean, the coalition didn't last for very long, but they were able, at least in theory, to squint hard and see how they might be able to work together on a tactical basis. So I do think that there will be new kinds of opportunities, but I think it's more about appeals to rank and file. What you say there relates to the first of two pieces of advice that close your article on avocado politics that will, of course, link to in the show notes. That first piece of advice is something you mentioned earlier, that we shouldn't assume that convincing the right of the reality of anthropogenic climate change is likely to make the right embrace the preferred policies of climate progressives. I should give a second piece of advice that I'd like to be sure and bring up, and that's around the rhetoric of catastrophe in environmentalism. How does that relate to the potential rise in the risks of avocados? Right. So that's a good question. And this piece began as a kind of internal debate among a bunch of us at the Bruin Institute as we were about to launch this new magazine, Noema. We have a section of the magazine that focuses on environmental issues. And the question is a website design question. What were we going to call that section? And some people on the team that wanted to call it the environmental emergency or the global climate emergency. And I pushed back really hard on that. And I, I really didn't like that as a term. And part of that was because there's a lot of evidence that emergency framing and skies falling rhetoric does not lead to either in one's personal life or in political life to dispassionate, careful decision making. It leads to panic decision making. And it leads to decision making, which is like, this really is an emergency. And we really only have, you know, as Greta Thunberg says, eight more years or the sky falls. 
Well, if the sky is going to fall in eight years, if we don't do something radical, and she's been saying this for four years, it was 12 years when she started saying it, supposedly we've only got eight years left, it starts to give warrant to really dramatic interventions that are likely to be anti-democratic. Because democratic politics is slow boring, and it's not something that one gets instant results on. And if one believes in democracy at all, and I do, then emergency framings are generally not a good one for one to pursue. Now, the right, I think, you know, traditionally is much less interested in democracy as a kind of political process than willing to embrace authoritarian or worse kinds of solutions quite naturally. So I think emergency framings ultimately favor the political right far more than the political left. So it's because of my own commitments as a moderate lefty, I suppose, that I prefer not to choose those kinds of emergency framings, because I think if it's an emergency and somebody who doesn't know whether they want to go towards more Green New Deal direction or more avocado politics direction, and they hear emergency framings, then things that the avocado politicians are promoting start to seem more appealing than the thing the Green New Deal people are proposing. And I'll just be like realistic. What do you think is easier as a policy to set up right away, especially using the executive power of the president? A border patrol is going to shoot all the brown people coming across the border? Pretty easy to do, as we saw, right, in the last presidency. Or a wholesale reimagining of the entire you know, global capitalist process. Regardless of where you fall on whether you think that's a good idea or not, even the most optimistic person is going to have to admit that seems like a little bit of a harder thing to accomplish than just shooting brown people at the border. And I think emergency framings make people get impatient, and make people say, OK, I got to do something right now. The house is burning. I'm not going to wait around and engage in slow, boring niceties. And so I really feel like emergency framings, really on any topic, but especially on the environmental one, favors the right over the left. Speaking of shooting... Your next thing I wanted to talk about was your recent one in the Breakthrough Journal, uh, The Guns of Warming, where you uh, reflect on your years working on climate change and security. So um, just want to start off, what are the links between climate change and security? So there's a number of them, right? It was about, oh, maybe it's 20 years ago at this point, when environmentalists and scientists first sort of became aware of climate change as a phenomenon. And the warnings have been being sounded now for 40 years, really, since the 1980s uh, is when first congressional testimony that warned that increasing carbon levels in the atmosphere were likely to lead to global warming and perhaps catastrophic results. So this has been news for a long time. The approach that was in was initially to treat it as a matter of protecting the environment itself. And sometimes there were questions of what the implications would be for the human population that was affected by these things. And so things initially came up around human well-being. And those things were really where the dominant part of the conversation about what the implications of climate change were. And it didn't move the needle, right? We didn't see a whole lot of action about moving the government to really change its policies in dramatic ways that would have really shifted the needle, particularly on the climate change mitigation side. You know, we had Rio, we had Paris, we had Copenhagen. None of these things were making any difference. So about 20 years ago, people started to think, well, you know, if this really, if we really do get to business as usual scenarios and get to runaway climate change, and we start to see massive sea level rise, and we start to see incredible heat waves, this may lead to not just human suffering, but actual political destabilizations of various sorts. And there's a bunch of precedents for this. We've seen how environmental catastrophes can destabilize governments or delegitimize governments. Perhaps the most famous example is the Boa cyclone of 1971, which swept up through the Bay of Bengal, one of the worst environmental catastrophes in history. Hundreds of thousands of people died in what was then known as East Pakistan and what's now Bangladesh. And their plight was largely ignored by the government, which was a thousand miles away to the west in West Pakistan. 
And the outrage that the ethnic Bengalis felt about the way in which they were just completely ignored by Punjabi and Sindhi majority in the western part of the country is what led very directly to the independence uprising by the Bengali people, which was then ultimately supported by India, which ended up splitting the two parts of Pakistan into two separate countries. The birth of Bangladesh emerged directly out of this. But there's lots of other examples people have had on an anecdotal basis where environmental catastrophes have led to political delegitimations. Flooding in China historically has been a classic thing that cost the emperor his legitimacy. And even in the United States, you can think about the way in which the George Bush presidency was largely ruined by bungled response to Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, those scenes of horror that we all saw there in 2005 just seem to compound and underline the general incompetence of the Bush administration, which had been manifest already in Iraq and Afghanistan, arguably. But once it came home to roost in, you know, those horrible scenes from the Superdome in, in New Orleans, it really drove home the fact that these people, and he's patting the FEMA director on the back and saying, heck of a job, Brownie. This was just a vision of a government that was out of touch with the primary way in which environmental concerns were destroying the lives of thousands of American citizens. And the George Bush presidency, in my opinion, never really recovered from that blow in terms of its prestige. And you can sort of see it in terms of the approval ratings. So there's a lot of precedents for why governments and politics can be destabilized. And obviously, as these environmental effects intensify as a result of climate change, that could lead to other kinds of destabilizations as well. And so what began about 20 years ago was a process of securitization of discussions where people started to talk about this, quote, security implication of climate change and the way in which security itself needed to be rethought in light of climate change. And here I want to make clear that the term security gets used in many, many different ways in the environmental discourse. So if you look at the most recent IPCC report, there were at least a dozen ways in which the word security got used to mean different things. It can be referred to interpersonal security, the chance you're going to get mugged on the street. It can be security in terms of interstate conflict and violence. It can be security in terms of your access to water, water security or food security or income security. This is the sense in which we mean when we talk about social security as an institution in the United States. So security means a whole bunch of different things. And what happened about 20 years ago was that security moved into the climate change debate. It started to be used as a way to mobilize a new class of resources, or at least that was the thinking behind it, is that if we started talking about climate change as a security issue, then the one really well-resourced part of the U.S. government, namely the military, might be brought to bear to think about the problem of climate change and the challenges it might present for us. So at that point, and this is in the mid and late aughts, a minor industry began to emerge that was writing for people inside the uh, U.S. federal government. And I should say here, I participated in this. I wrote a bunch of reports of exactly this sort, where we tried to imagine and anticipate what are ways in which environmental destabilizations could lead to things the Pentagon would have to deal with. And the idea we had at the time was that if we got the Pentagon to realize that it wasn't just that it was going to destabilize Syria, and it was going to destabilize Central America, and that it was going to destabilize Yemen, that there's water shortages happening in all of these places, and there's food insecurity places, but that this was also going to cause refugee crises and so on, that at some point the Pentagon would say, oh, we better take on the root causes of these and actually press the federal government to engage in a realistic climate change mitigation strategy so that the underlying cause that's going to create all these security risks will be addressed. That certainly was my motivation in participating in these discourses, as I say, 10, 15 years ago. It's not how it worked out. So um, how, did, how did it work out? Well, I should say I stopped doing this kind of work very intensively about seven or eight years ago. So I haven't been closely involved in the conversations that are going on in the Pentagon. But what's ended up happening, and by the way, this is a not an uncommon phenomenon. It's not just about the Pentagon. It's about the nature of bureaucratic entities in general, probably in the government. 
instead of deciding to take on a whole new uh, approach to attacking the root cause of climate change, which is carbon emissions, they just used the rising threats and the threat multiplier. That was the term of art that became very common. The threat multiplier that climate change introduced as an excuse to ask for more resources to do the things they'd already been doing. So they need more counterterrorism to deal with destabilizations of populations in the Sahel and the way in which that was likely to lead to political radicalization. They used it to justify new kinds of kit in the Navy that can be heat resistant to engage in combat in more extreme temperature and climatic conditions. They used it to justify new kinds of investments in thinking about what the strategic implications of the reopening of the Arctic to shipping would look like. So they didn't actually take on the underlying root causes of climate change. They just used the fact that climate change is happening to demand even more resources for the things they were already doing. Is there something shared between the two halves of this episode so far, something in common between avocado politics and climate security? in which advocates of climate action emphasize the severity of expected climate change impacts and call for their traditional political non-allies, if not opponents, to take up the issue, perhaps in the back of their mind with this hope that these traditional political opponents will not only come to see the light of climate change, but will come to see the light of a broader worldview and, and steer toward the them, meaning the speaker, in more than one way. And then lo and behold, it doesn't work out. And the recipient of that message takes the issue, climate change, and puts it into their own box, in which ethno-nationalists put it into the box of or the right wing puts it into the box of ethno-nationalism and says, sure, we're just going to close up our borders. And the military-industrial complex puts it in their box of, oh, well, we need more gear to adapt a world that is indeed changing. It's not that we're going to cut emissions and suddenly become the green army. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And by the way, this is not just the military or the far right. The left does this too. What is the Green New Deal but the long-standing social democratic wish list now justified in part around environmental concerns? I think this is exactly correct. You know, and that's because of the peculiar nature of climate change in particular. Resource depletion maybe is a, a little bit different, but has similar characteristics. I used to like to use this phrase. It's a little bit of a dank meme, you might say. But there used to be this ad that the German chemical company BASF ran in the late 1990s um, that said, we don't make the products you use, we make the products you use better. And I've always thought of climate change as being the exact inverse. Climate change doesn't make the problems you have, it makes the problems you already have worse. So which countries are going to be particularly bad at adapting to climate change? It's probably actually not the Netherlands, even though it's right at sea level. They're going to figure out what to do because they've got a high capacity government and a high trust society. Whereas a country that's racked with problems already and has a government that's not competent is going to be way less capable of being able to deal with these things. And in fact, the government will become even less capable as a result of the pressures that climate change is putting on them. So because climate change doesn't make the problems you have, it makes the problems you already have worse. When people invoke climate change, they just use it to justify taking on the problems that they already wanted you to take on in their own politics a priori. And I think this is true across the board. People are using climate change not to change their priorities, but to re-justify the priorities they already have. And actually, I think that's a test of whether you're serious about climate change, is whether you think this, if you really think this is an existential threat to civilization, as I do, which of the priorities are you willing to give up in order to take on this thing? Like your preciously held priors. If you're on the left, are you willing to give up the dream of global justice in order to prevent the planet from burning down? 
No? Well, maybe you're not that serious about climate change. If you're on the right and what you really want is to preserve a certain kind of Christian nationalist society, and you're not willing to give up on that in order to prioritize other things, or you want to really keep driving your gas guzzling car, then maybe you're actually not that serious about climate change. And likewise, the Pentagon doesn't seem to me to be particularly serious about climate change. And the real tell on this, and I would just take it away from partisan or even ideological politics for a second, is that the Biden administration just published a climate strategy coming out of the Pentagon, and they're going to climate change as part of their threat assessment, but they're not actually going to reduce emissions, even though something like 6% of emissions in this country are military related. So there's a non-trivial slice of the entire emissions of this country is related to the activities of the military. And all of the pressure that the Biden administration is putting on the federal government to reduce emissions exempts the military. This is just a sign that they're fundamentally not serious yet about taking on this as a problem. They're not willing to deprioritize existing agendas in order to prioritize this one. So and I think this is a litmus test you can apply to every single person, regardless of their politics. It's are you willing to give up something precious to you in order to choice rank climate change mitigation or adaptation as a higher priority than your existing political wish list? Yeah, I guess when, when I saw that litmus test, I thought I sort of read it as rhetorical. <laughs> I, I presumed the answer was going to be no. But I guess I, I think something in this area, though, is it seems that most won't give up their core priorities to address climate change but they will change peripheral priorities. What are some areas that you think might be cut or might be affected in that way as the seriousness of climate change builds up the political agenda? That's a very good question. So I think that there are some things that people may be willing to do in the United States. Things like managed retreat or planned retreat from coastal areas, particularly in the face of rising seawaters, this was something that 10 years ago was very much outside the Overton window of the civil political things. And it's now something that people are willing to discuss. And it's already happening in some places. So after certain kinds of flooding events happen, you know, the government is not willing to fund the rebuilding of those spaces. They're asking communities, sometimes even preemptively, to move away from floodplains and indefensible zones that are becoming even more indefensible from floods because of rising seawaters or, or changing precipitation patterns. So I do think that that's the kind of thing that is changing and people are willing to countenance those things. But so far, I haven't seen a lot on any part of the political register of people who are willing to give up their maximalist political goals that existed prior to and apart from climate change. I think so far, I'm seeing people use it mainly to justify more of what they already want. So I'm not that optimistic that there's sort of really clear areas where people are willing to change their positions um, and give up their priors in order to take seriously and prioritize climate change adaptation and mitigation. One area that I, I thought after sort of reading your two articles there was development aid, international development aid. I mean, I, it's not an area I know particularly well, but if one of the priorities of development aid is to promote economic growth in the developing world, that seems that it might be eaten away at from both sides. If there's a growing right-wing concern about climate change, it might divert some of that money to security and preventing migration. And I think there's already moves, again, I don't know this too well, on the left, on the progressive climate side, to not fund any more fossil fuel development, which would be greener, but might hamper economic development. Is that, is that a reasonable thing to worry about? I think that could happen, except for the fact that foreign aid at this point, at least foreign aid that's coming from the West to the global South, is mostly not focused on economic development activities. It's mostly focused on social infrastructure, education, healthcare, 
things like that that don't actually, I think, have a lot of implications for climate change. It's also been a declining sector for a long time. Uh, it's not something that that much money goes into already. There's a lot more money in terms of money flowing from north to south. It's happening through NGOs, actually. But again, you know, you look at the biggest NGO in the world, it's in north to south, the Gates Foundation. They're promoting global health. They're not promoting industrial development. So I, I don't know that that much of that is happening anyways in terms of the U.S. got out of the industrial development and the global south promotion business a long time ago. Now, there might be other things where you might say, okay, we could legislate that U.S. companies can't build carbon intensive factories in the global south. That might be something that one could do, but that's not something that I've heard anybody put on the agenda. So I don't, I don't really see that happening anytime soon. So I'm not, I'm not particularly optimistic on that either. A common thread that we've been talking about on this episode has been the difficulty of issue linkage that's often caused by the lack of flexibility that political actors, activists, and organizations insist on, instead of trading, which is typically the backbone of politics, uh, an insistence upon A and B, as opposed to give me A and I'll give you B. Stepping back at, at a more general level, if you could give advice to those who are concerned about climate change and politically active in this area, what would that be? Well, I do think that the essence of strategy in general, and I used to say this to clients all the time when I worked as a management consultant, the essence of strategy is deciding what you're not going to do. There's a million things that need to be done, and you have to decide how to prioritize. Preference ranking is the way economists would put this. And in fact, economists define rationality as consistent preference ranking. I mean, that's literally the definition of rationality in, in economics. Um, are you able to consistently, across multiple scenarios, say that you want the same things uh, when you have 17 different priorities and they come up in different configurations, different contexts? Are you able to be consistent about the way in which you prioritize things over, over time? I'm not sure I would call that rationality, but that's how the economists refer to it. What I do think is important, though, is to have a, a clear sense of what your priorities are and a willingness to move those priorities around when the facts about what the implications of pursuing one priority versus another begin to change. And what climate change does, you would think, is it might get people to say, actually, I need to move this particular issue up the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love eating beef, but maybe we really need to tax beef because those, those cows, when they burp, are really putting a lot of methane and it's really not very good for the environment, right? So we actually need to tax beef as an environmental thing. Yes, I like eating hamburgers. Yes, I like eating a steak, but I'm going to, you know, give up that priority because I have this other thing I care about. Or, you know, could be any a number of other things. Airplane travel might be reduced. There could be lots of other things. And the truth is, as we've just seen with the pandemic, societies are capable of radically reordering their preference structures when they see enough of an emergency. We also have seen during the pandemic, particularly in Western countries, that there's a lot of pushback to that preference re-ranking, right? And so I come away from the pandemic of the last two and a half years quite pessimistic about the ability of Western societies in particular to impose a really serious preference rank reordering uh, on the population. And, you know, depending on your perspective, that might be, you might say, well, that's good. That's because the people are sovereign and aren't going to be controlled by these fascistic states. On the other hand, if you really do regard climate as a kind of civilizationally existential threat, then the fact that we can't change our preference rankings in the face of it has very dire implications for whether we're going to be able to do anything about it. What within the current world, the current related to climate change or, or not, gives you optimism for the future? 
Well, I'm not sure I'm an optimistic guy by position, so I'm not sure there's that much that gives me optimism. But if there is, I actually think there's a younger just emerging, and there are new kinds of political modes of engagement that I see emerging in many parts of the world now to give me some hope. I have been participating and observing a lot of new kinds of participatory democratic practices that are trying to think about creating intergenerational justices that I think provide a new kind of language for potentially changing the way people think about the responsibilities that we owe to our descendants. And that might create a possibility space for us to actually change the dialogue around you. I mean, part of the reason why people discount the future is, you know, we've lived in an econometric world for the last few years where, you know, there's implicitly a discount rate against future generations. And if you've got a 3% discount rate, then everything that happened after 50 years from now is essentially, no matter how bad it is, devalued down to zero. And I think there's a new set of discourses that are emerging that are beginning to allow us to have a different kind of ethical dialogue that potentially could change in a really dramatic way if things take off the way we think about our obligations to our descendants that might motivate us to behave differently. I think the veil of ignorance, which Rawls mostly talked about, about sort of horizontally within a particular society and having to do with uh, economic inequality, also needs to be extended longitudinally over time. We have to imagine what kind of a world would we want to live in if we didn't know we were going to be born in 1971, 2021, or 2071. What kind of a world would we be organizing? So that sort of longitudinal veil of ignorance, I think, presents a kind of language that might change the sorts of things we're able to think about. Our guest today has been Dr. Nils Gilman. Nils, thank you for joining us on Challenging Climate. Thank you very much for this. This was a fun conversation. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.